My sermon today is going to be focusing on verses 41 through 71. We're going to read the entire chapter. John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them, them to those that were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to the, which they were going. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, 
Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in his synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You can have a seat. Father, we have just done the most important thing that we are going to do this morning. That is to read, to hear, to take in your word. Father, we are completely dependent on you through your spirit to bring life in us through your word. As you so well told us, it's the spirit who gives life. Our flesh is no help at all. Father, I pray for your glory and the benefit of your people, Lord, that you would empower the preaching of your word. That your awesome majesty would be manifest, made manifest in us to a greater degree today, Lord. Father, thank you for giving us your word pray this in Jesus' name. We begin our account today with the people who have traveled for days following Jesus, desiring to hear him teach, desiring to watch him heal, and being amazed at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. With this group of people, who have traveled once again across the lake to be with Jesus, only to be confronted by him once they got there. They haven't said anything wrong to him. The only thing that they said that we're told, anyway, was, Rabbi, when did you get here? And this group wasn't made up of just casual Christians. Many of them considered themselves to be disciples of Christ which means that they had devoted themselves to following him, being taught by him, learning how he lived, how he ministered. They were serious in their walk with him. But it was after this seemingly casual question to Jesus, a question that they began with, Rabbi, that Jesus just seems to go off on them. What gives? Did he have a bad night's sleep the night before? 
Maybe he hadn't gotten his morning cup of coffee and he was just angry at the world and he was going to take it out on anyone and everyone. Or maybe he just had an issue with being asked about his schedule. It was none of their business. But it was after this question that Jesus begins confronting them. First, with the challenge to them that they were only following him because they were fed yesterday and not because of the signs that he had performed. Verse 26. He then moves from that challenge to telling them that they need to stop working for the food that perishes and start working for the food that endures to eternal life, which only the Son of Man can give to them because God has set his seal on him. Verse 28. Their response to this was to ask him what works they must do to be doing the works of God. Verse 29. Here, in this one response, is the gulf that stands between us and true salvation. I want you to hang on to this thought because I'm going to come back to it. This question concerning doing the works of God in response to being offered the work of God is crucial. Jesus had told them that he would give them the food that endures to eternal life. They respond with, what works are we to do to get that? Jesus came to give eternal life to all those that the Father had given him. Verse 37. And all that his father had given him will come to believe in him. And all that those that do come, those that have been given to the son, he, the son, will never cast out, but he will give them eternal life and raise them up on the last day. Verse 40. Jesus wanted all that were there on that day to know exactly where they stood concerning the salvation of God and the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is why he began challenging this group on this day. Jesus had never been on a mission to build a thriving, successful ministry that would just challenge the status quo at that time. He was not validated by the numbers of people that thronged to hear him speak that showed up to be part of the venues that he was at. Only fleshly, carnal men think along these lines. Jesus was going about his father's business, preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the blind, the lame, the sick, and even bringing the dead back to life, all being done as validation that the Son of Man was the Son of God, and was in fact God himself in the flesh. All these things were done by Jesus with the intent to bring glory to his Father. But nevertheless, a crowd had gathered. A crowd of religious-minded people began to follow him, thinking that they were part of him, thinking that they were part of the family of God, but Jesus wanted to separate the sheep from the goats, those that were his, from the masses that were interested in being religious, 
being made feel to feel religious and being made to feel like they were okay with God because of who they were with and not who was with them. He does this by challenging them with himself, which is where we begin today. These disciples grumbling because of Jesus, grumbling because he had said that he was the bread that came down from heaven. These people were offended by the claim being made by Jesus that he had come down from heaven. If they knew Mary and Joseph, they would have known about the questionable circumstances in which Jesus had been born. The Pharisees knew about it. They had done their due diligence concerning Christ, a point that they will make in chapter 8, verse 41, when they tell him that they were not born into sexual immorality, and they knew who their father was. But Jesus wasn't one to be easily offended by men which is why he quickly reiterates, reiterates the truth concerning why they were grumbling about him. Verses 43 through 46, Jesus answered them, Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. In essence, what Jesus has just told these people, who claim to be his disciples, is not to argue about theology concerning him. It wasn't an argument to be won or lost concerning who was in the kingdom and who was not. And in this one statement, Jesus has just killed all semi-Pelagian thought concerning man's ability to choose God. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Here again, in this one response, this time made by Jesus, the gulf between us and true salvation is, again, is revealed. Again, hang on to this thought. It's no wonder that these people were having such a hard time understanding Jesus. They couldn't get past the humanness of him to be able to hear the truth that he was telling them. In essence, they had made Jesus into the king that they wanted and not seen him for the king that he is. This is crucial. They had the right Jesus. They even had the right attitude of worship towards him. They desired to be taught by him, desired to be with him, were willing to follow him. Even if those within the religious establishment, didn't like him. This is the danger of false conversion. This is why Jesus was willing to offend these folks. He knew the importance of truly knowing God in comparison to knowing the God that we have made in our image, the God that we can understand, that we can get, 
that won't challenge us too much. But he will continue to challenge them, to tell them the truth, which will offend them. Verses 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This section of scripture has been deemed part of the Bible that contains hard sayings. There's two reasons for that. First is it's not clear what Jesus meant by the things that he said here. Was this all just a reference to the sacrament of communion that he's going to institute on the night that he's betrayed? There's a large section of historical theologians who hold that it was. At the same time, they're considered hard sayings because they challenge everything within us. They're challenging to the carnal mind, to the flesh. On this, all theologians agree. All people have this in common. Christianity is challenging to our flesh. If we are to be true disciples of Christ, we will understand that this is par for the course. We may have been regenerated by the Spirit. We may have Christ living inside of us now, but we are still entombed in this body of death that's corrupt to its core. And for this reason, we will be, we must be, challenged by the truth of Christ if we're ever to make any progress in our sanctification and our war on our evil nature. John Owen so rightly said, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. This quote is from the book called Mortification of Sin, a book that he wrote to believers, a book that was written for the church, a book that contains this truth as its sole foundation. We must be about the work of killing sin, or sin will be killing us. And the word of God must be the tool that we use to kill sin. A large part of killing sin in ourselves is having the truth of God's word making its way within us. That is to say, we must submit to the truth of God's word. No matter how painful it is, if we're not willing to do this, if we're not willing to stand on the truth of the word of God, we will suffer for it. Does this mean that a true saint can lose their salvation? That we can, by our actions, forfeit our place in the kingdom of God? That we can crawl through the hands that hold us 
through the holes in the hands of Christ and out the other side? No. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in our verses today. This is what eternal life means. Eternal life forever. Verse 47 alone, whoever believes has, might not have, not temporarily has, not even conditionally has, but has eternal life. But our actions, how we live our life, how much we submit to the Lord and his will in our life, will have a direct bearing on our sanctification. Something that Paul echoed in 1 Corinthians 3.15. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. A truth that Jude wrote about in his epistle, chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He clearly tells us that our actions do make a difference in our eternal state. Not where we end up, but how we get there. And even what our eternal state will be like. Build yourself up in faith through prayer. Keep yourself in the love of God through faith in Christ. But listen how Jude finishes that thought in that verse. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. There was no doubt in the mind of either Paul or Jude that the truth of eternal election and the perseverance of the saints was just that, truth. You can't lose, forfeit, or even return God's salvation. If God has chosen you as his, it's a done deal. This is the great thing about understanding the nature of God. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones, for others. Then we proclaim with our mouths the truth of who God is, for his glory foremost, and then in the hopes that these folks will come to Christ. But we are confident that God will do what is right, what is just, what is holy concerning all people. He will bring all that he has given to the Son into eternal communion with him through the working of his Holy Spirit and the Word. 
Before we move on, I want us to think through this last statement that Jesus made. To allow it to challenge us in our flesh. Again, verses 47 through 51. Hear what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am living I am the living bread that, comes, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What was the point that Jesus was making in this statement? He was speaking to people who thought that they were his disciples, that thought that they were part of the family of God and who thought that they had a good grasp on what it meant to be Christian. He challenged them in that understanding by challenging them with one of their heroes, Moses. He challenged them with the manna that their forefathers ate, that miracle that they were putting so much stock in. All those people died. And ironically, the entire time that they were being provided with that manna, the manna that they're now throwing in the face of Christ, they grumbled against God. They weren't content, amazed, or satisfied with the truth that they were the chosen children of God, that it was he that was providing for them, that it was he that provided that pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. They grumbled because it just wasn't good enough. But this is the challenge. Those that eat the, or that ate, that eat the bread of light that comes down from heaven don't die. All they eat of it will live eternally. Is this the reality that we know? Did Spurgeon live forever? Calvin, Luther, Augustine, Whitfield. Jesus has just said that all that eat of this bread will not die. So were these men not saved? Has no man ever been truly saved? Because all men have died. None have continued living forever. Is this not proof that what Jesus just said is a lie? Here, the gulf between us and true salvation is revealed. These people thought so much of themselves that they thought that they could make Jesus their king. These people, just like the Israelites coming out of the Exodus, grumbled at God, thinking that they had a better plan, a better way. These people thought so much of themselves that when they heard this Jesus was going to give them his body, his life, in order that they would live for all eternity, they didn't think that was a very good deal at all. They didn't think that it was much of a bargain. 
they thought that they had life. And that the life that they had was equal to, or at least pretty close to, as good as the life that Jesus said that he would give to them. We are just like these people. We have a bad understanding of what life and death are. We think that this thing that we call life is as good as the life that Christ promises us in him. We think so much of ourselves that we don't think that the eternal life that is found in Christ is worth trading this life for. Wait a minute, you're saying, you're crossing into dangerous territory, mister. You're messing with one of our sacred cows. Because I know where you're going with this. You're going to talk about that fixation that we have about holding on to this life at all cost. Yes, I am. This is important. Especially in light of where we are in this moment of history. Our country, the world, is fixated on doing whatever it takes to stay alive as long as we possibly can. The saving of one life matters, even if it ruins the entire country, while at the same time murdering millions of innocent babies daily. But at least we're saving ourselves. And this is the true driving force behind that obsession, saving ourselves. We should not be afraid of what happens at the end of this life. Let me state that one more time. We should not fear mortal death. And there is no but to the end of that statement. No, yeah, but we should be kind and caring of others. Because a kind and caring thing to do would be to live a life that displays the reality of the eternal life that we have been given in Christ. In giving us himself. No, but we should do the smart and responsible thing. The smart and responsible thing to do is to realize the gift that we've been given in the eternal life. Made available to us through the giving of the Son. And then live as if this is truth. But wear a mask. Social distance. Save lives. Are we now in the life-saving business? Have we snatched that control out of the hands of God? I'm not trying to get political. But I am desiring that we really look at our motives and our actions. Is this life really all that matters to us? Is our life here in this realm anything in comparison to the life that we have been given in Jesus. 
Listen to how he thought about death. In Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, he's talking to the disciples about causing a child to sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And then he goes on, talking to the disciples. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Did you catch how he talked about dying? He didn't think that it was the end of anything. It was the beginning. It is then, there, that we enter into life. The world is deathly afraid of death. And it should be. What is waiting on the other side for them is not eternal life. It is eternal hell. The people of the world should cower behind the scare tactics of the media. They should be afraid of getting old, should be afraid of COVID, should be afraid of the flu, of aliens, and of anything else that could and will kill them. They have no hope. Nothing to look forward to. They still think that this world revolves around them. And when they hear the truth of the gospel, that Jesus gave his life in order that they could have eternal life in him, with him, they don't think that's trading up. Do we? Because this is not the reality for those that are in Christ. It was the reality of eternal life given through Jesus that empowered the early church to stand against the Roman government. Being imprisoned, being separated from their loved ones, being tortured, being fed to wild animals as sport in front of masses of entertained pagans, who weren't worthy of, our, of the suffering of our brothers and sisters. It was this reality that empowered the great evangelical ministries of the past, when men and women would take their infant children, leave them with their pastors, most never, ever to return again, thinking that it was a privilege to die in the service of their king rather than to live common, safe lives. It was the reality of eternal life that led the saints just a few generations ago to encourage, to plead with, to teach their children, to, to go into the world, preach the gospel, knowing that they may never see their kids again, this side of glory. But this is what made it all worth it the reality of the other side of glory. 
We now teach our kids. We implore them, be safe. Wear your mask. Don't go out into public settings. Is the reality of the eternal life given in Christ? It is that reality that continues to spur our brothers and sisters in parts of the world that are deadly hostile to the gospel. Spurs them to renounce their Muslim heritage and run into the waiting arms of the eternal life-giving Savior. Many of whom meet him not long afterwards. It was this reality that spurred Paul to write in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Dear saints, I implore you, allow the Lord to check your heart. Our actions prove that which we say that we believe. They prove what we believe and what we love. If I say that I love my wife, and I continue to be swayed by the others, by the opinions of others and the desires of others, if I profess my love for her, but continue to act as I did before I met her, then my actions prove if in fact what I say about loving her is true or not. Far too many in this generation who claim Christ as their Savior who claim to have been purchased by his blood, who claim that they have eternal life in him, far too many live like that is not a huge difference. Which is exactly why Christianity is irrelevant in our culture, in our world. Think about it. If life with Christ is that good, if eternal life is so different, so special, if you being reconciled to God is so important, then why do you fear death? Why do you live like those that do fear death? Live like Christ. Doesn't matter. Like life with him isn't much better, much different than life without him. Allow him to reveal the truth of what you fear the most in your life. Is it death or not truly having him? Allow him to convict you if you are his and still fear death. Allow him to reveal the truth of our eternal life that is given us through him, giving his flesh for the life of the world. In verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
There's no reality under heaven that Jesus did not know that in saying that he was the bread of life that came down from heaven was challenging to these people. And not only challenging, but in fact causing them to be highly agitated, making them frustrated and mad. He has caused his group of disciples to become highly agitated at him. And he knew it. He was in danger of losing his following. He had better choose his next words very wisely. Because if he didn't, he might well lose his church. He may see it dwindle to nothing very quickly. And so he does choose his words wisely. Verses 53 through 58. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a, fa- as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Have you ever heard how the gospel message is preached these days? How an invitation is given? An invitation to ask Jesus into your heart? Do these verses sound anything like that? Because this is an invitation. One of these two invitations is off base. One of these two invitations is presenting a false gospel. One of these two invitations is inviting people to meet a false Jesus. Because I'm not sure if you've ever had to eat something that you truly hated or drink something that was really foul. If not, let me tell you, you don't accept that into your heart. That food, that drink is hard to take, and it's sitting right there in front of you, challenging you with everything within you not to recoil at just the thought of it. And here in verse 53, Jesus reveals to us the gulf that separates all humanity and himself. Outside of him, outside of his life, we have no life. Anyone outside of Christ is a zombie. The walking dead. We need to realize that truth. This is how vast a difference life in him, the life that he gave his body for, is in comparison to that which we call life. This thing that we scratch and claw to try and hang on to. This thing that we're willing to trade the reputation and glory of the one that we claim died for us for. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Once again, Jesus is emphatic about what it takes to be his disciple. Complete 
submersion into him. Not toying with him on Sundays and perhaps a midweek service. Not a casual glance at him as you walk on by. To be his, you will have to surrender yourself and ingest him. Make him part of you. This is why you should not be happy to be entertained by people who are supposed to be ministers of this Jesus. This is why you should not throng to people who will make church fun. To make any gathering in the name of Christ silly, entertaining, a good time to hang out with your friends. Jesus was not silly. He wasn't entertaining. And he wasn't relevant for youth. He provided life for dead people. The reality of this was offensive to the people that were standing there. All of them. Verses 59 and 60 prove this. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? These people were right. This is a hard saying. It's still a hard saying. And it surely doesn't sound like a gentle, soft, and cuddly lamb that wants you to have your best life now. It isn't silly. It isn't relevant. And it isn't entertaining. This is a hard saying. It's a hard saying for many because of the exclusivity that it places on, on how anyone enters into eternal life. Only through the Son that the Father is sent. Not through works, not through human efforts, not through anything or anyone else other than Jesus. For others, this is a hard, or a hard saying that they can't stomach because it threatens and demeans that which they hold on to most important, our earthly life. Because it makes every aspect of this life an elective in the eternal school of education. Everything that we hold dear here, outside of the word of God, is of secondary importance to the Son of God and the eternal life that is found only in him. For others, this is a hard saying because it demeans them personally. They understand correctly that they have no part and entering into the eternal afterlife with the Lord. They want to believe that they can reject the Son of God. And most of them standing there on that day will walk away, thinking that they have done this very thing. They will walk away thinking that they have rejected Jesus. They heard him. They listened to his spiel and then they decided, nah, not for me. They actually think that they're the ones who are making the choice. That they are the ones that are rejecting Jesus. They may have heard him speak, but they didn't listen to what he had to say. This is a hard saying 
for many because of the manner in which it's presented. It's offensive to what they deem as their free will. If I'm being told what I must do, then forget it. This isn't the Jesus that I know, not the God that I worship. He would never demand that I would do something that I think is morally wrong. And this is hard saying for even those that truly believe. Wow, Lord, really? This is the life that I have before me? Suffering? Hardship? Lack of the things that the world deems important? This is a hard saying. But again, Jesus doesn't waver on it. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Please hear me on this. What Jesus said was hard to take in. It was offensive to these people. But he was not being offensive. There is a difference between being offended and offending someone and being offensive. Jesus was not attacking these people. He wasn't attacking their person. He was telling them the truth in love. Yes, telling them the truth in love. Yes, in love. And they were offended by this truth. Even offended at how he said it. They were offended because he said what was true. And they were offended because it challenged everything they thought about who he was and who they were. They were offended that he was placing what they deemed an undue burden on them in order to enter into eternal life. They, had, they were offended because they had bad thinking concerning the person of Jesus. And they were offended because they were not chosen by the Father to believe in the Son. They thought that he was just like them, that he was one of their buddies, that he was willing to accept them as they were, that they were good to go as they were, that their devotions, their works, their assumptions were all good enough for this guy. And now they were offended because he revealed truth to them. He was not like them. He was human, just as human as they were, as human as we are. But he wasn't like them or us in that he did love the Father. And he didn't sin like they did. He hadn't corrupted himself as they had, which is why he desires to clarify for them why they should not be offended by these statements. Verse 62, he says, What then if you were able to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So would seeing the Son of Man ascend back into heaven where he came from, would that change your perspective on who this eternal life-giving, flesh-giving Son of God is? Would that change your perspective? For some, yes. 
For most, no. Which is why he clarifies, once again, the separation that was happening within that group at that moment. So we got a bad picture in our minds of what's going on at this time. We think Jesus had his A-team, the 12, and they were over on one side, and that everyone else was excluded from this inner circle. That's simply not the case. The 12 at that moment weren't standing next to Jesus, sitting on one side of the synagogue with him, and then the huddled masses of those posers were sitting on the other. No, Jesus was more than likely sitting at the head, much like I am standing here speaking to you. And the 12 were dispersed among their friends, hanging out with them. But within that mass of humanity, over 5,000 people sitting there, there was a division happening that was completely out of this world. They all heard the same offensive words being spoken by the same offending man. They were all being told, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this was a hard saying for all of them. And what Jesus would say next wouldn't make it any easier. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh is no help at all. Zero. Nada. But pay attention to the last part of that verse. When he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Christianity, the life of the church, all that we do here is all built about around this truth. We no longer need to see miracles, signs, or wonders. We no longer need to see physical manifestations to prove the reality of Christ or those that are his. He has given us his word. And the word that he has spoken, the words that we have in our hands, those words, the words that you have in your hand, these words are spirit and life. Do you see this to be true? Or is this just a cold, dead book of fables and stories that you get to pick and choose from to decide which ones are true and not? Because this same book, these same words, for some are life, and for others are boring. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now he's done it. He's offended these people to the point that they're no longer willing to walk with him. 
He split the church with his Calvinism. He has caused offense. He's caused division within his own group. Four times within it, he says, Thus saith the Lord. And every time he tells them the same thing. I am the bread of life. The Father has sent me. We are one. I am not your king. I am the I am. And I am king over all. But only those that are called can come. And to all that, call, that are called that come, that are compelled by the Spirit, to those I will never cast out, but give to them my flesh and my blood. And in me, they will have eternal life. This is the gospel. And as proof of what he has said, as proof that it's true, as it, that it's truth, he turns the remaining twelve, twelve, out of more than five thousand that had been he had just fed the day before, more than five thousand that just yesterday were ready to make him their king, who just yesterday were so devoted to him, so enthralled with him. But now they've been shown the reality of who he was, and they wanted nothing to do with him. And now there was 12. You would think that he would have just left well enough alone. I mean, he's still got 12. But no. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Okay. We need to separate fact from fiction here. We need to leave Fantasy Island and come back to reality. Because we can think in our minds that the answer to that question posed by Christ to the Twelve would have been a resounding, No! Do we want to go away as well? No way! We're your boys. We're with you to the very end. It's obvious that those guys were false converts, not like us. We're the true believers. Do we want to go away? Never. This is fantasy. These men were just as shocked by what Jesus has said. They were just as challenged by the words of life as those that left. Did they want to go away as well? You better believe it. A fact that is well attested to by their actions the night when he's arrested. A fact that is well attested to by their actions after his death, when Peter, the one who's about to answer this question, told the others, I'm going back fishing. I'm going back to my old life. I've had enough. Do they want to go away as well? Yes. But hear the words of a man who has had his heart regenerated by the Spirit. A man who has been called by the Father. Who the Son has given his flesh for. A man who will eat of this flesh and drink of this blood. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Have you been tested by the Lord to this point? Have you had your world rocked hard by the Lord and then rocked hard again? Challenging everything that you know is truth. Challenging everything that you think is right. Challenging everything. And being challenged by the truth of the Lord. If so, then you know the heartfelt words of Peter. A man who is broken. And yet a man who is not hopeless. He knows. He has been shown. He has seen within himself the reality of who this I am king is and knows that he alone has the words of eternal life. Peter knows he has no other choice. Real life is found in this king alone. But dear ones, let the closing words of our I am king ring in your ears. Because if this were a movie made by men, we would have ended this movie with the final proclamation of Peter. A happy ending, even though so many rejected the truth of the Lord. But that's not how the Lord, this Lord, desired this account to end. He would not end his movie with such an untrue, sappy ending. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here, as a last parting shot, Jesus once again tells these men who think that they have chosen to stay, that it is he that has chosen them. That's why they're staying not because they chose him, but because he has chosen them. They are all instruments of his salvation and grace, and one of them will betray him. He will be the instrument that is used to bring about the giving of the flesh of this king. He was one of the twelve, but he was really never one of the twelve. We are given this truth in order that we never get rocked by those that leave the fold. That our worlds never crumble when one of those people who we think are a heavy hitter in the kingdom of God, a celebrity pastor with a large following, when they go off the deep end. We are not supposed to be looking around us at those who are standing alongside of us. We're not to be captivated by them. They're nothing more than dirt clods 
that are at the beckoning of the Lord. We are supposed to be enthralled with the one who alone has the words of eternal life. Where else are we to go? Here also is truth and comfort. The 5,000 people did not reject Christ. This world and the people of this world do not reject God. God has rejected them. Judas will not reject Christ. Christ has rejected all of them. And you, you did not choose the Lord. He chose you. Which means you cannot lose your salvation. It's not yours to lose. He has chosen you to have real, eternal life. And you remain only because he desires you to. It's on his word, for his glory, that you remain. Now, go and walk in this reality. Let's pray.